I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and we'll be talking a little bit about that voice talking to the dignity of man that was president lyndon johnson when i say it was the largest nonviolent direct action protest ever undertaken in the capital city of the united states you might be wondering what was that was it the world war one veterans angry about not getting their promised bonuses or people demanding equal rights for all races could have been many different things, but it was about that time in our history that was about as divided as we find America today. We're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. The history of that era, so many protests, yet the war continued despite protest after protest. Johnson decided not to run because he wanted to end the war in Vietnam, one that he knew he deserved great blame for, he could negotiate a peace and an American withdrawal uh, if he were not seeking re-election. That was his thinking. As we now know, citizen Dick Nixon committed treason by sending Henry Kissinger to South Vietnam to convince that government to get out of the peace agreement, that they'd get a better deal if they waited for President Nixon. So the war went on, as did the protests. Even larger, different groups that had helped plan the moratorium and other massive protests against the war in Vietnam. Debates raged about taxes, tactics rather. How important was it to still keep building support throughout America to make it easier for members of Congress to intervene to bring our troops home versus taking direct action, which carried the risk of turning moderates off? If we took over the streets of our nation's capital, it would anger some people who were against the war, but just didn't like being inconvenienced. Well, what convinced me to participate in the May Day demonstrations in May 1971 was that the people of Vietnam are being more than a little inconvenienced. And that as one who believed that as Americans, we should be standing up for oppressed people's rights to overthrow colonialism. It was incumbent on me and lots of us to recruit fellow students to get some funding from my college to help pay for a bus to Washington, and with our bodies, stop the center of the war-making machine for at least one day. Sure, we knew it wouldn't actually bring the war to a halt, but the symbolism was important to show the world. And the people of Vietnam, we stood with them and against our government's unpatriotic war, against their right to self-determination. Was there a risk in making some people angry that we're impeding traffic? Yes, there was. But many felt a strong physical civil disobedience statement had to be made. And the president surprisingly reacted, it was Nixon at the time, by encircling the White House with end-to-end buses, literally touching each other with armed troops inside the perimeter of those buses. This was America. There were thousands of illegal arrests. The streets of Washington were transformed, tear gas and billy clubs everywhere. And of course, the war did not stop. 
But was the May Day action a success? Well, it depends how you define success. Our guest on this half of Keeping Democracy Alive is Ron Jacobs, author of Daydream Sunset, 60s Counterculture in the 70s, published by Counterpunch Books. His latest offering is a pamphlet titled Capitalism is the Problem. He lives in Vermont. Thanks so much for being with us, Ron. How are you doing? Oh, not bad. Staying safe. Well, by 1971, the American war in Vietnam had been raging for six solid years. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Protests began in 1965 as small events in America's big cities, and as the war went on and on and on, there were more and more bigger and bigger protests. Pressure on members of Congress peeled off a few who spoke out against the war, and they deserve recognition. Bella Abzug, Les Aspen, Frank Church, Ron Dellums, the Reverend Robert Drynan, J. William Fulbright, uh, Al Gore Sr., Mike Gravel, Mark Hatfield, Robert Kennedy, Allard Lowenstein, Republican Pete McCloskey, George McGovern, Mike Mansfield, Wayne Morse, and Tip O'Neill. They deserve mention today because very few members of Congress would dare to go against the president, and it was Johnson's war until 1969. So they deserve a lot of credit. Protests started with young white people and grew and grew. And after more and more protests involving ever greater diversity, how did the May Day protest come about, Ron Jacobs? There was a determination uh, to continue the protest. Uh, a year, this was a year after Kent's, um, the invasion of Cambodia and Kent State and Jackson State and everything else that happened that year, which was also... Um, on May 9th, there was a huge de- hastily called demonstration in the United States, which over 100,000 in Washington, D.C., which over 100,000 people showed up. But like you said, the war continued. Some Vietnamization had happened, which was the process where um, U.S. troops were slowly being pulled out. Uh, U.S. bombing was being ramped up, and South Vietnamese troops were taking the, some of the combat roles that had formerly been led by the U.S. troops. Uh, another thing that had happened was like in 1971, Nixon formally made public the bombing and incursion into Laos, which had been going on. The bombing had been going on for years, but it had been finally made public. And this angered a lot of people, a lot of anti-war protesters, too. And it was kind of a—the decision that the anti-war protests had to continue, and depending on what element of the anti-war movement you were part of, they they had to be both bigger— and in some cases more militant, that was kind of the determination that brought most of these people um, together to start forming, to start developing plans to be into Washington, D.C. Um, the last week of the last week of um, April and the first week of May in 1971. And as anybody who knows and who was there or read, has read about it or remembers, um, the, the protests begin pretty much with the Vietnam veterans against the war and their Operation Dewey Canyon 3 yes. um, on the Washington Wall. Yeah, that was very impressive. Where The, the, the veterans themselves, I, I think they really helped to turn the tide of public opinion. And that did start it. And many of us were camped out in the park. We'll get to that a little later. But uh, there was a split over tactics. Some... Not just this event, but some argued that we needed to keep on attracting people from what was called the heartland, the Midwestern states, and that direct action in the streets would turn them off. They see a bunch of hippies, and no, that's not me, and I have to get to work. Was this, how was this split dealt with? Was it resolved? 
I don't think it was ever resolved. No. And I mean, I spe- speaking as a younger member, I was, um, I was, I had, was going on 16 in 1971. Like I actually turned 16 on the day of the Attica massacre later in the year. Oh, um, but, but, uh, I can remember for me, my appeal had begun, my anti-war appeal, my anti-war work actually started begin when my dad went to Vietnam, uh. but I became more and more militant. He went to Vietnam in 69. I became more and more militant. Uh, the people that appealed to me the most were people like the Yippies and the Mayday Tribe and the Chicago 7 slash Chicago 8. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, there was some element of truth to the fact that the more mains of that mainstream America actually started going to these protests, whether they were went to the big ones in D.C. or held local ones in their home in, in their hometowns and so on. Um, that's what was going to put the real pressure on Congress to change the war. I don't believe Nixon was going to change the war right. until he, until whatever happened happened. But I believe that Congress could be forced in part because people like those that you listed at the beginning of the broadcast were there. But also, I just think because it is becoming politically stupid to continue su- to supporting the ongoing war and so on. So it's, I don't think it was ever resolved. And I think what the May Day, the two weeks of May Day protests actually represented was basically kind of a, an acceptance that we're going to disagree on tactics, but we're all going to work together to make as massive and as impressive a show of force in the streets of D.C. to, to show the opposition. And that's ultimately what happened. If you think the the protests... Um, there was a huge protest by the, not the May Day tribe, but I, I can't remember the, the group. I think it was the People's Coalition for Peace and Justice, which involved anyone from the Socialist Workers Party to a variety of clergy and laity concerned to a lot of the Congress people, um, and they held that huge demonstration earlier in the week. I believe it was. Yeah, I think it was April thirtieth. Yeah, April thirtieth. That's what it was exactly. Yeah, yeah, right before the May Day stuff. The camp started up in West Potomac Park and so on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was an, an interesting period. And there were so many different groups involved. And, uh, uh, you know, if Franklin Roosevelt had been talked to by A. Philip Randolph, who uh, was a black leader of the uh, Pullman Porters Association, and he wanted to convince President Roosevelt to, to do something, to end segregation and to... to build in equality. And, and uh, Roosevelt said, well, I'm with you. I'd love to do it. Now go out there and make me do it. And that's what we mm-hmm. were doing. We were making it safe yeah. for them to do that by having people out in the streets saying, no, this is, this is May Day is an emergency. We can't just keep on going like we are. We have to do something about this. And I was in Vermont at the time where I guess you are, Ron, uh, probably yeah. Northern Vermont, I imagine. I was in Southern Vermont. My affinity group had as a target the key bridge between Virginia and the district. Everybody had their own different targets to shut down as part of the protest to shut down the war. Our goal was to shut down our target with other groups shutting down others. Of course, it seemed the police knew our tactics better than our ragtag group. So it didn't take them very long to uh, to yank us off the street illegally. And uh, uh, they took my Swiss Army knife, which they said was a concealed weapon, but I'm sure he gave it to his kid. But many of us had camped out in a park near the memorials. I can't remember the name of it. It was a long time ago. We were woken up at 6 a.m. by helicopters with bullhorns ordering us to leave immediately. And they had TV cameras clearly trying to take pictures of each and every one of us. Can you describe the police tactics of that day? Yeah, and this is the, the, um, the, this um, book that I 
I re- that just came out called May Day 71 is by a fellow who lives in Maryland. Yep. From, his name is Lawrence Roberts. And, you know, he's done a really good job compiling this. So I'm just going to kind of be, I'm going to talk oh, sure. a little bit about what he said in there. And he said that basically the, the determination for the police tactics, there was an ongoing debate between Jerry Wilson, who was the um, chief of police of Washington, D.C., and um, basically in Washington, D.C., it's a calling of the United States, so yeah. they hire and fire you and so on. And he um, he was in a constant battle with the Nixon White House because the Nixon, he wanted to kind of just let the protests happen and, and, you know, basically let it peter out, whereas Nixon wanted to heighten the stakes and, you know, you know, his right wing was saying, oh, no, we have to go after them. They're communists, they're this, they're that, you know, they're they're anti-American, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And he was, and so although Nixon was, I, I think, I believe he was either down in the Florida White House or out in the um, San Clemente, um, he left right before the protests really got underway, after, right after the VBAW protests kind of shut down and they joined the other protests. He, um, he, he had commanded uh, one of those guys in the White House uh, that became infamous during Watergate, Haldeman or Ehrlichman or one of those. Uh-huh. And he had commanded them to take, to become the point man. And basically, Haldeman or Ehrlichman, whoever it was, said, okay, we're gonna, we are going to revoke your permit to camp in that camp. Because uh-huh. Jerry Wilson had given him a, a permit. And that's why you guys were woken up at 6 in the morning, because the original plan, because... Nixon's thinking was like, well, if we can roust all these people, like I think it was like 20 hours before the protest or 24 hours before the... Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, and I think their idea was like, well, they're all going to leave and go back to their colleges or back to their homes or whatever, or back to their communes, whatever. And that way, the 40,000 people they wanted in the streets will only be about 5,000. What they didn't know was that there was a lot of people who weren't in the park um, who are camping, you know, sleeping in church floors yes. and camping out at the University of Maryland, Georgetown, George Washington. And so after they rousted you all from the camp, they basically, this is what is described in the thing of what friends of mine who were, who were there at the time told me. I was over in Germany. My dad was stationed overseas at the time, so I was engaged in anti-war work over there and stuff. Great. But he, um, but he, they, apparently they started the campuses were told, don't let these people camp on your grounds. And then they sent in police to make sure that that didn't happen. And then that's when they activated the national guard and so on. Uh, so it was basically working from the white house. The white house was the, were the, was the focal point for the, for the attacks on the, on the demonstrators from day one. Um, and it just intensified as it got closer to the day that you are describing where people took over key intersections and shut them down. Well, it was very hard to shut them down because the police would, they knew where we were headed. So they'd grab us first. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's funny how that works. They were far better organized than we were. They know what they were doing. Well, they they also had infiltrators everywhere. Absolutely. I thought it was kind of funny. It would be fairly easy to pick out uh, infiltrators and agent provocateur. I remember a man urging us to pick up rocks and throw them at police. Most of us were like, no, we're not going to do that. And we were taken off to jails and other holding pens. One could easily tell who was a plant. They were, especially among women, they were neatly pressed bell bottoms that were too short. 
And that just scares uh-huh. me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. they wore a uniform yeah. I'm with the government. Yeah. And the police seemed to have a heck of a good time rounding people up. They went on their motor scooters and, you know, had billy clubs and just throwing tear gas all over the place. They had a, a good time. I mean, you talk about riding the streets. It wasn't us. It was them. And, of course, yeah. the media loved what we were doing, how we were doing it. They and some of us understood about grabbing media attention to help communicate what we intended. They, they like action. The media likes action. Protesters running in the streets. Oh, boy. Cops lobbing tear gas canisters, beating kids with nightsticks. It was the picture that told the story. We were committed and angry that the war still went on after all these years, and the media seemed to like it. It's funny how history... It, it, it erases certain things. How many people have even heard of May Day these days? Not that many. But there is that new book. Yeah, outside, outside of people like you and outside of younger, younger people who are interested in that history or who are in, you know, on the left themselves or whatever, you know, and even a lot of them don't know about it. I could talk to people at what, what is it, the Democrat, a DSA meeting, Democratic Socialist meeting, oh, yeah. and it would, be, it would be new information for them, <laughs> you know. Uh you know, the real good history is the stuff that's specifically left out. It's, it's amazing to me how this happens. I mean, True. it was so big True. at the time, but now you're right. The day at DSA, people wouldn't even know. And as you mentioned earlier, the VVAW, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, what a great bunch. They still are. They're still active. They opposed American yeah. involvement in Iraq. Really good bunch of guys. They're, well, we're all getting older these days. Uh, but the media did like it at the time, and then it disappeared. The big action was Monday when we... We try to stop the city's business for a day. On Wednesday, after being, and, and we did, you, you talked about being kicked out of the park. Yeah, we stayed in people's houses, slept on church floors. It was no problem to find places to stay. Sure. I, dis- yeah. I discovered in D.C. there were rats. I did find that. <laughs> but, yeah. So it was a learning experience. But the big action on Monday was to stop the city's business for the day. On Wednesday, after being held in a one-person cell for many hours with many other detainees, and we were scared they were going to throw tear gas in there. We wouldn't have a place to go. When there was a protest in the street, I wish I knew the name of the street by the Justice Department. There's just this one block. Uh, it's like an H in the middle of the H. I made sure to stand near the end so I could have an easy escape route. And I remember when, and, and the media there was all excited. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? John Mitchell, who later went to jail, as he should have. He was the attorney general of the United States who eventually went out to to jail. At the time, he came out on his balcony from the Justice Department to glare down at us. The police closed off the end of the street at that moment, took it as a signal, and arrested everyone in between. There were Mm -hmm. lawsuits after the fact. Many of the 13,000 people arrested that day were found illegal. Can you talk about that at all? Yes, absolutely. They said, yeah, they figured it was 13,000 people, and they basically made... Originally, they were going to try to use the field arrest forms, which was those things where they would take your picture. You know, they they put you in cuffs, those plastic cuffs, and then they would take your picture, and you'd have to put in basic information, and then they would let you go. And then when Nixon, the Nixon White House came down and said, we're going to just arrest people, and, and the ones we can't arrest, we're going to beat and chase, they said that um, they decided to do away with the field arrest forms. And... That in itself is illegal because then they're just picking up people and throwing them in whatever they were throwing them in. They threw them in like parking lots. They threw them inside the old Coliseum. They threw them like you were describing where you ended up, like hundreds of people in in jails that were mental twenty at the yeah, most right. in the whole the whole building and so on. And 
they didn't feed him for a while, oh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then when they did, it was, you know, it was whatever. It was jail food. But um, they, um, I don't remember getting it. Turned out, yeah, go ahead. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. 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 As it turned out, they, um, there was the public defender's office actually mobilized the Washington, D.C. public defender's right, right. office mo- yeah. mobilized. And they were the ones that led the charge to get everybody out of, out, out of jail um, for that arrest. The, the arrest, the big, the big bunch of arrests on May fourth, the Monday, and then also the subsequent arrest that you're describing, um, as people started getting back out of jail. And their idea was just to keep people in prison for 24 hours so that they wouldn't go back out on the streets. Yeah. And this is a tactic they had used before, and they started using a lot again in the 19 late 70s and early 80s when they people started doing direct action at nuclear power plants. And around El Salvador and stuff. You know, interesting on those illegal arrests, a friend of mine um, who lived in the D.C. area at the time, he was another high school kid, he's around my age, he's dead now, rest in peace. Oh. Um, but but he, uh, he got arrested in that protest that you're talking about where John Mitchell came yeah. out. And he, somehow he got involved in a class action lawsuit that was led by people with Bella Abzug and a couple other Congress people in Congress, you know, people with a little bit of power in you know or connections in dc and about 10 years later he got a check in the mail for eight thousand dollars yeah yeah because there was that was the only lawsuit that was the only loss civil lawsuit that actually paid out everybody there's a lot of civil lawsuits that happened after that um, because of the illegality of the arrest but that was the only one who were was able to maintain the pressure on the justice department to go all the way through the legal to finally get a payout. Now, I just know we were him and I and a bunch of our friends were living out in California. He went home to visit his parents, and his father said, "Oh, yeah, there's this there's this thing from the government on on that piece of mail that came for you a few weeks ago." <laughs> and my friend was like, "Oh no, they finally caught up with me." And then when he opened it up, it was a check for seven thousand bucks. You know, <laughs> unreal. And my father was disappointed. I must say, he was a, a businessman against the war, and that was a good group too. And yeah, he, they were. They made a lot of difference when they finally pulled it together. They put those huge ads out in the yep. in the in the New York Times and all that stuff. Yep. And yep. he he was. Had I been part of that Wednesday protest, he would have eagerly joined in that lawsuit. He had a lawyer friend who was well-known at the time, whose name, unfortunately, I can't remember. But since I was arrested on Monday, I mean, they just grabbed me and threw me in a paddy wagon. There was no charges or anything. But I couldn't participate. Yeah, I couldn't participate. But somewhere, somewhere down in the bowels of D.C. legal system, are uh, my uh, mug shots with fingerprints. I would love to see them. I, I wrote to the uh, Freedom, of, Freedom of Information Act, and they said, no, no, we don't have them. The D.C. police have them. But anyway, they're there somewhere. Uh, I, I, I had longer hair. Anyway, if you just tuned in, I forgot to mention Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. On this half, we're talking with Ron Jacobs, author of Daydream Sunset, 60s Counterculture in the 70s, published by Counterpunch Books. Counterpunch does great stuff. And we're talking about May Day, 1971. And, of course, May Day means emergency. Well, since that time, the government learned what it needed to keep up business as usual. Today, most Americans have accepted what they want us to believe, that we are powerless. But that is not true. 
So many people think, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. We're all, especially in these age, this age of COVID-19, we're all disconnected to one another. Creative nonviolent resistance has always been, throughout history, an important option. Gandhi used it. Martin Luther King used it. What about ways we can, we can exercise power now? They, they say we don't have any, but I'm sure we do. This is a good question. Recently, yeah. um, last, last, last Friday was at May 1st, yeah, on May Day, here up in, I live in Burlington, Vermont. Beautiful. And, and they've been doing a lot of uh, different groups have been, you know, unions and just individual workers and students who aren't going to school, you know, who don't, can't go to school and stuff like that. They've been doing a variety and migrant, immigrant groups and so on, have been trying to figure out ways to count, to counter the, Attacks basically on working people that have really, t- really stepped up in in the wake of the COVID nineteen thing with with the you know the payouts going to big business and people waiting six weeks and still not getting their unemployment, being told they have to go back to work even though they don't feel it's safe. And so, what one thing they had was they had a pretty decent car caravan with probably like about four hundred cars that drove. You know, even though you have to use the via, you know the fossil fuels to do this and so on. Right. Um, they drove from the prison to the mayor's office, to a couple of the businesses, to the INS office, um, DHS office, and so on. Just kind of, you know, make, making some noise and trying, and you know, trying to say, hey, you know, you need to pay attention. You know, the people are what matter here, and so on. But it's it's if this goes on a lot longer, it's really going to take some creative types of yeah. nonviolent and and protests and so on. Because you know, beyond what we can do on the computer, beyond what we can do on our cars, beyond you know, voting, etc., and so and all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious to see how that'll work out. And I also think that mm. no matter who wins the election in November, hoping that there is one, yeah, we're going to, we really need to step up that whole approach of like, you know, broadening, broadening the base, convincing people they can make a difference and figuring out multiple ways to make it so that we're paid attention to and pressure is put on the lawmakers. Yeah, it's true. You need to put pressure on them. You need to make it uncomfortable for them. You need to make it hard for them. And uh, if they see that, uh, that people are, are giving up, then they'll continue. But there are creative ways to do it. You know, people, there's been general strikes in the past. I mean, they, there was only one, really, in 1934 in San Francisco, which ended rather poorly. But there are yeah, things yeah. that you can do to make noise. I remember a few years ago when George Bush was president. Remember how lousy a president we thought he was? Huh. But anyway, <laughs> he gave, a, he gave yeah. a speech one night, and people all across the country got pots and pans and literally made noise in the streets. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're we must be related somehow. But uh, <laughs> um, but making noise, making life uncomfortable for them. If the people are silent and just go along with it, they think it can get away with everything. But there are things we can do. Market forces that can be uh, interfered with somehow or another. I don't know. It's going to take a lot of creativity. But other uh, societies. I mean, you know, for Gandhi to take on the whole British Empire. Wow, it's amazing. I mean, they had no guns, nothing. And they won their independence eventually. Well, fascinating stuff here. I'm glad to bring some attention to it. It's about time that uh, people heard about uh, what's going, what happened 
in May of uh, May Day, 1971. May Day meant emergency. Our guest has been uh, Ron Jacobs, author of Daydream Sunset, 60s Counterculture in the 70s, published by good old Counterpunch Books. Great, great site if you haven't been there. Thanks so much, Ron. Great to relive the memories. And You're welcome. Wonderful talking with you. Yeah. And hope for the future. Cohen here, keeping democracy alive. Generally, history moves at a frustratingly slow pace. We've hardly ever had a real shock like we're experiencing now. Consider the civil rights movement. Taken over 100 years and we're not there yet. Ending the war in Vietnam took years of relentless protest. The Great Depression did not happen all at once. LGBT rights are still somehow controversial. The run-up to the war against Southern Succession took many decades before it started. Events that seem to change everything overnight are exceedingly rare. The novel, is, the novel coronavirus is one of those few. In many wars, tremendous rivers of blood have been shed for access to oil. The British knew they had to beat the Ottoman Empire in the First World War because oil was needed to run their war machine. And the Germans knew that too. Fast forwarding, most of us remember the oil shortage of the late 70s. Long lines at gas stations, prices jumping from about 35 cents a gallon to the unheard of price of a dollar a gallon. The bad guys were clearly the oil shakes in Saudi Arabia. Now our president and his son-in-law are best buds of the royals in Saudi Arabia. Oil is everything. Then came COVID-19. And everything changed. In December 2019, oil was near $65 a barrel. At one point, it was over $100 a barrel before that. Today, for the first time in history, the price of oil fell below zero. At one point, in fact, a barrel of West Texas Intermediate, the benchmark for U.S. crude oil, hit negative $37.63. Negative $37. 
American drillers had to start paying potential buyers to take it off their hands and store it until needed. Of course, we know this president's priorities. He immediately instructed the Treasury Department to start looking into some way to provide financial aid to the poor petroleum industry. The same interests have, that have held tremendous power over virtually all segments of our government. Less than zero for the price of oil. This is unthinkable. Despite that, it's real. Of this shocking new development, a good friend wrote on Facebook recently, The sky is bluer. The air is cleaner. The trees and grass are greener, and the water is clearer. I hope this time teaches us something about false gods. End of quote. Perhaps this new world may help us learn something about the false gods which we have worshipped for so long. Meanwhile, it's a fact that the air is in fact cleaner. Animals which have been carefully hiding in deep woods are coming out all over the now emptier world. Even the water in Venice is clearing up. My car is getting three to four weeks to a gallon these days. No one is driving like we used to. I haven't gone to check, but I wonder about the morning and evening traffic on Boston's Route 128. Normally, it's a giant, multi-mile parking lot of people trying to get to their jobs. Thousands and thousands of people not moving. That pollution-reeking, soul-killing awfulness is one false god I think millions of us would be happy to get rid of. Our guest today, Professor Michael Clare, asks on Tom Dispatch, is this the beginning of the end for oil, energy, in a post-pandemic world? Michael Clare, thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's always a pleasure, and this is a great topic to pursue, so let's get into it. Uh, you bet. Well, he's a five-college professor emeritus of peace and world securities at Hampshire College, and uh, his latest book is All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. Many good people have, have, for at least four decades, been pushing for sustainable, renewable, non-polluting sources of energy. Part of the challenge has been the power that the petroleum industry has held so firmly. Your article refers to a study by the International Energy Agency, which predicted that by 2040, renewables would finally supersede petroleum as the planet's number one source of energy, and that coal would largely disappear from the fuel mix. That was then. This is now. You write, it turns out that the impact of COVID-19 is reshaping the world energy equation, along with so much else, in unexpected ways. End of quote. Use of fossil fuels has been at the very heart of worldwide economic activity. Airlines are in deep trouble. The cruise line market really might as well just chop up the big behemoths for scrap metal. It's over. This stay-at-home survival mode, could it really be the beginning of the end for the worldwide dependence on petroleum? And as a result of the precautions necessitated by the pandemic, many are wondering, when will we get back to what used to be normal? Some of us are starting to think that what used to be normal won't come back, that some of our new practices may become permanent. Your thoughts? I mean, even will there ever be giant concerts, political conventions, handshaking, or even in-person learning at colleges or universities? What do you think, Michael? So, of course, this is a highly contentious issue because our president and many Republican governors would like to go back to that. Uh, now you have to put in, in quotation marks what was normal. Yeah. Um, I I don't think we're going to see that for the foreseeable future, not not at all. Uh, now this, of course, will be up to how the virus evolves and how science evolves with it. But I can't foresee huge crowds gathering again in stadiums like before, uh, and 
and I worry very much about colleges. I, I yes. live in a college college town, Northampton, Massachusetts, yes. where Smith is, and there are four other colleges here where I used to work. And it's a big question whether they'll reopen in the fall uh, with in-person teaching and whether they will ever resume the model of higher education we know of, of small classes or lecture rooms with professors interacting mm. with students, whether we'll ever go back to that. Likewise, you know, uh, uh, corporate offices. Uh, I, yeah, I think true. that the trend towards uh, working at home, I think that's irreversible. Of course, we'll go back to some. Some of us will go back to working in offices and the like. But I, I think a lot, a lot of what the behaviors that have been altered by COVID nineteen, some of those will be permanent. Probably so. And an issue that's come up and sort of been buried for a long time is the concern about global warming. We had that sixteen-year-old Greta Thunberg who who was excoriating the so-called grown-ups that were not doing anywhere near enough to seriously fight global warming, which has been a major threat to our existence. Experts wondered if it was too late to have any meaningful effect on slowing climate change, and people have for years argued that we can't really address climate change without major job loss. Well, there are a lot of job losses. Bankruptcies are starting to pile up. Is this the price we must expect to pay for a swifter-than-expected transition to averting the worst outcomes of climate change? Uh, Well, we are seeing um, in very rapid speed what was expected to take place over the next two or three decades, which is the collapse of the fossil fuel industry. And yes, there will be consequences. Companies will go bankrupt. And people will have to make a transition in employment from fossil fuel industries to the energy industries of the future, renewables. Now, bear in mind, this was happening before COVID came along. This is not something that COVID is doing. This transition was well underway. The Renewable industries were the fastest growing supplier of electricity in the United States before COVID. But what's happening is this is being accelerated very rapidly. So we're seeing before our eyes a two-decade transition maybe happening in two years. Wow. That's pretty scary. It's going to be tough for a lot of people. And, you know, I wonder... We in this country have had prolonged unemployment before, called the Great Depression. I wonder if the the demand for FDR-style New Deal public works jobs might begin in earnest. There is a lot to do in terms of safe, renewable energy. Now, Republicans have opposed such programs, and Democrats have, I don't know why, it seems like maybe they shied away from it from looking like big government. What do you think realistic alternatives are there? Is this something that is suddenly uh, uh, encouraged? You know, I think anybody in their right mind, anybody with a brain, would be saying that's that's what we should be doing right now. Uh, a lot of infrastructure repair. There's a huge amount of work that could be done on bike lanes and public transit and busways, and a whole lot of uh, work can be done to enhance our infrastructure in this country. So we. A, a, a new deal would be this is a perfect time for that and preserving the wilderness, 
protecting our national forests. You don't need a lot of investment to get that That's rolling. Um, and I, I think uh, we, we'll see a demand for that. But uh, but I, I don't see people in Washington no. with the you know brain power necessary to pull this off at this moment. You know, it unfortunately, does, we've done it before. I, you know, brain power. There was the Citizen Conservation Corps. Lots of students would like to be able to work. Uh, there's the Student Conservation Association, a private uh, thing now that's, that's a nonprofit. There's all kinds of work to be done to clean up the environment. I would think people would be anxious for that. <clears throat> so instead, we spend money on public works jobs like building missile systems, which hopefully will never, ever be used. But the, the value of them is that they hire people. It's a kind of a public works job that doesn't... No, 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 no. That's totally misleading. The, the number of jobs created in today's high-tech industries is minuscule. And a lot of it is done by robots, and a lot of it is ah. done by by computers. It's, it's all algorithms that are being hired. Uh, in the high-tech weaponry of the future. Very, very few new jobs will be created in the new arms race with China. Well, I, I, my favorite political button is we need FDR again to have real jobs. We could, I mean, solar collectors, you know, rapid transit, rails, so many different things are possibility. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with Professor Michael Clare about is this the beginning of the end for oil? energy in a post-pandemic world. Of course, it's not just the U.S. which is experiencing this sudden shock of COVID-19. China and India are huge economies. Their burgeoning middle classes have driven the demand for growth. And your article quotes a recent oil market report which projected the global petroleum consumption in April that we just finished would fall by an astonishing 29 million barrels per day compared with the same month the previous year. The strength of economies has been measured traditionally by job growth and increased production. Your essay cites the uh, International Monetary Fund's April World Economic Outlook report predicting that global economic output would fall by 3% in 2020, which I think it's going to fall a lot more than that. That report more also, than that, yeah. Oh, yeah. The report also suggests that the cumulative loss of, to global gross domestic product in 2020 and 2021, thanks to the pandemic, will amount to some $9 trillion, a sum greater than the economies of Japan and Germany combined. And you, as you point out, Chinese consumers have been traumatized by the pandemic and are not returning to old spending patterns. So looking at China and India, what happens there if they do not resume their upward oil consumption trajectory in terms of the worldwide economy? So if you read the uh, projections of the oil industry, you know, each year ExxonMobil and BP and Chevron issue their annual oil outlook looking forward. And this is the perspective they send out to investors and shareholders saying that they they have a, a rosy future. And all of them say the same thing. Our future rests on burgeoning uh, middle-class consumers in Asia. They don't see any growth in Europe. They see only modest growth in the United States in demand for oil, none, none in Europe. All, all of their projected growth comes from Asia, and it anticipates that you're going to have a couple of billion new, uh, new, newly rich Asian consumers who are going to run out and buy oil-powered cars and drive them for the next 
few decades, driving up oil demand. That is the great hope for saving the oil industry. And it's not going to materialize. I don't see it happening. And if it doesn't happen, the oil industry is dead. I should say it's in, it's, it is doomed to decline. Let me put it that way. Yeah, it is, it is doomed. It's interesting how sometimes having a perspective of history and understanding economics might not have anything to do with how businesses are run, and so they oftentimes run them into the ground before realizing what's going on. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, Michael Clare. We're talking about uh, possibly the end of oil. Now, investors have been really bullish on China and India. I mean, as you say, that's where it's all been growing. What about trade patterns? China as you say, has been the primary destination for exports for products from around the world. The Chinese have been gobbling them up. Do we see any signs that their governments, China and India, are preparing for widespread economic hardship? And and I wonder what they're thinking about the uh, immediate economic uh, outlook. Oh Well, the, the places you have to look is not in China for that. You have to look at Indonesia and the Philippines and Southeast Asia and Africa and Australia, because that's that's all, all those places. Their economy depends on exports of raw materials to China, uh, like coal and natural gas and iron and copper and wood and all of that. China has been in recent years the primary destination for the world's raw materials. And if if the Chinese economy does not continue to grow, and if the world is not buying Chinese products, then the demand, the Chinese demand for raw materials is going to decline, and that's going to cause a depression, long-lasting depression in many African countries and in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And I, I I think that all of those places are beginning to draw that conclusion and already seeing signs of uh, hardship in many of those parts of the world. And that's going to become, that's a whole separate discussion, Bert, of economic hardship in Africa yes. and Asia of, of extreme poverty, hunger, and starvation as a result of COVID-19. And part of it is tied to the slowdown in the world economy, and that's connected to a great extent to the slowdown in China. Yeah, I look at at various uh, news reports and and think about how incredibly crowded India looks to be in Bangladesh and places like that. And, you know, they have to have contact with one another. So by doing that, they exacerbate the problem of uh, coronavirus, but they don't have any choice. And China has been digging into Africa for a long, long time. And I, I kept thinking, why isn't the U.S. in Africa? Well, Trump called them uh, an unfortunate name, and so they, they weren't doing business with us. But China has been creating a lot of jobs for people in Africa, and it's looked fairly hopeful for, for uh, economies rising in Africa. Uh, I, I wonder, and you mentioned... Uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, places like that, could, we could be looking, I mean, I hate to be too negative here, but we, we're looking at, uh, you know, not, not just tremendous pandemic, but, uh, you know, starvation, things like that. 
Absolutely. I, I think there's no question wow. that uh, this pandemic is going to have a long-term economic impact. We're, we're seeing it in our own country, and many people here are uh, suffering already extreme hardship, yes. uh, homelessness and hunger. But you have to multiply that many times in places where there's no safe, safety net right. and and people are poor and at risk to begin with. And that's the story we're seeing in Africa, Latin America, too, in Central America, in Ecuador, which has a very high COVID rate. Uh, So I I, I think we have to understand this pandemic is is a, a tragedy on multiple levels. That is certainly very, very frightening. And uh, I wonder if there's any leadership in Washington at all. I mean, the, the idea of, of creating real public service jobs, I, the tremendous opportunities there just to create new jobs and to, and to you know, get a hand on the economy. I mean, the far right and so-called conservatives don't want any government interference in the economy. Pfft, yeah, well, we'll see what that does. And... Uh, uh, do you see any hope that, that some of the Democrats will see what's right before them? I mean, I, I, they're not seeing the forest for the trees, that there could be all these uh, ways to uh, invest in America. And, I, you know, you know there, there, there are plenty of ideas out there. And, and this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a leadership issue, as you correctly noted. And, uh, you know, and I wonder where Wall Street is in all of this. Oh, really? Uh, you know, we've been told for the past decade since Reagan that capitalism is the cleverest, uh, most successful uh, system ever to be created. And, and uh, you know, when it works, it generates a lot of wealth, at least for some people. Uh, but it seems in this instance, the leaders of the capitalist world seem largely inept and incompetent in dealing with this crisis and coming up with a measures to uh, address the after effects. You know, dealing with the health crisis is a scientific and health matter. We have to turn that over to the health specialists, right. and they're doing a pretty good job as far as I'm concerned. But the economic recovery requires economic leadership, and that's not what we're not seeing that. You, you need a concept of how to get an economy running again that, uh, that uh, takes into account all, all of the uh, situation we face, like a need for, for large-scale testing. And like you say, Put putting people to work on projects that that are productive for the economy, like yes. infrastructure uh, repair. And, but we we don't we don't see that coming from the uh, high levels of capitalist thinking. That's not they're just thinking about how can they make profits. an extra buck out of out of this crisis for themselves <sighs> and let the economy be be damned. Wow, you would think. Maybe uh, some smart investors would think long term, and I, I've always kind of liked uh, the the economic uh, approach of John Maynard Keynes, and I would think his approach is still applicable. You know, to invest in America, invest in jobs, and uh, do some deficit spending, 
and uh, and we'll get there. But uh, I don't know if people are going to see what's right in front of them, but they could pick it up. Yeah, well, they're certainly doing deficit spending. But yeah. But, uh, you know, it's no, more, more money into the hands of corporate shareholders for the most part. Uh, taxpayer money is, is being spent that way. It's not going into what what classic economists, what, what capitalist economists would call for, which is to invest in productive activity that will generate jobs. That's that's what's not happening. I kind of wish it would. And, you know, people are looking forward with, with hope. I mean, they're all stuck at home. And, yeah. and you know, college kids are using their computers, and it's not quite the same thing. People are hoping that we can get back to some sort of normal in terms of consumption. But you say this appears highly unlikely, given the way the pandemic is reshaping the global economy and everyday human behavior, end of quote. How does this affect the globalization, which has become the norm in the past decade? Yeah, well, I think, I think we're going to see uh, the opposite, deglobalization, regionalization and localization. So the hope that you talk about, and and I see reason for hope, is at the local level where uh, you see more community resilience, community building uh, projects, uh, self-help projects at the community level, food, food assistance for the needy, uh, providing health for the needy and homes for the needy. If you look around the country today, you'll see a lot of those local uh, self-help projects taking place. And I, I think uh, looking into the future, uh, there's going to be much more emphasis on local food production, for example. Mm. One thing that's very clear, now th- this was underway in the past. People, there have been more... Uh, you know, uh, far, urban farming and and farmers markets. This, I think, will be will be much more of that. One of the most powerful effects of the COVID pandemic is destroying the food supply lines that we've come to mm. rely on, where you have a few meat packers and and few key corporations controlling the distribution of large amounts of food products, especially meat, and those have become COVID hotspots and have had to be closed down because we, and we become so dependent on food products that are brought to us from thousands of miles away. Right. This, this, I think, is one of those things that will come to an end to a great extent after COVID, and we'll become much more dependent on food-grown closer to home. So this is an area, combine that with, you know, local uh, renewable energy projects. This is where the hope lies for the future. And I know even Republicans back when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate talked about municipalization, like of water, public water. We could have more local banks, even nonprofit banks, dare I say, and different local solutions. And Trump has been saying, "No, it's not. It's not the government's fault. It's not the not the federal government's job. It's up to you locals." Well, maybe that'll be a good thing, as it turns out. Can teleworking, which has been a fantasy for years, can that become the new normal? And can it help address climate change continually? Uh, teleworking is becoming the new normal, and there's going to be a lot more of that in the future. 
I I know it comes with inconveniences yeah. uh, for some, but on the other hand, think think about how many hundreds of millions of miles of driving that have been saved for Americans. Oh, and it's just, noticeable. Just in the past few months. That's that's why this. you talked about the skies being bluer. That's yeah. why the skies are bluer, because we've had, uh, like I say, hundreds of millions of miles less, less commuter traffic. And, you know, that's going to be very appealing for a lot of people. You don't have to go to the office every day. Yeah. Um, and uh, now this That's is going to have a profound effect on the use of energy yes. because a, if, if commuting is the principal source of energy use in the U.S. because that we, that's a largely uh, performance conducted by people in automobiles consuming petroleum, whereas if you're working at home, uh, which has increased, the principal source of energy you're using is electricity. And right. so electricity use will rise as compared to petroleum use. And electricity can be provided by any type of energy, the production of electricity. You know, you could use coal, you could use oil, you could use fossil fuels, but it's becoming cheaper and easier and, and more affordable to use renewables for that purpose. And so as we rely more and more on electricity as our source of energy, it's gonna, that's going to accelerate the shift towards renewable sources of uh, energy. So we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> there had been predictions that we might uh, be dependent on renewables uh, of up to 50% by 2030, but I have a feeling it's been uh, kicked in the butt a little bit. It's probably going to go uh, speed it up quite a bit. So perhaps this is actually a silver lining of all this, that uh, more decentralization, perhaps smaller, more local, and uh, just rearranging the world in possibly a better way. In this sense, in this sense, I think COVID is a acting in a positive way of moving us away from our reliance on fossil fuels and moving us towards greater reliance on renewables. And this is very good for the planet. It means that our emissions of of uh, carbon dioxide will slow down. Yeah. And the rate of climate change will will slow down. It's yeah. very good for the planet. Yes, it is. It's tough, but it's good for the planet, and we will uh, make the best of it. It is kind of a silver lining. Michael Clare, thank you once again. If people want to follow your work, you often write for Tom Dispatch. Uh, any other books or internet thingies you can point them to? Uh, well, TomDispatch.com, and I have a website, Michael Clare, and that's K-L-A-R-E dot com. Well, thank you and so much. My pleasure. Always great talking with you, Bert. Take care. Likewise. Thank you. Your baby does.